Hey crafties, welcome to this bonus episode. I am very excited to share this with the community, an interview with someone who I was very honored to have on the show, someone that I've been following on social media for a while now after I made the pleasant discovery that he plays Magic. Today I'm going to be talking with John Darnielle founder and lead singer of The Mountain Goats, a very celebrated author of a number of books. And John's really a deep well, is often sought out to discuss a wide range of topics. And so I'm really excited. I had a chance to hone in with John specifically on Magic Arena, which is a passion that we both share. Now, John's time was limited on this interview, and we actually got cut short because he had there were a couple of interruptions and he had another call coming in. But I was very happy for the conversation that we had, and I hope you will enjoy it as much as I did. So without further ado, I'm excited to welcome John Darnielle to the show. How are you doing today, John? What's happening? I'm, you know, I'm decent. Like I told you earlier, I'm kind of getting owned. I'm, I'm having a very busy day. So, <laughs> so I, you know, when you try and squeeze your games in between two things, it, it tends not to go well. Yep. It sounds like you might be a best of one gamer. Yeah. I, I mean, I try to be a, the thing is I drafted yesterday and I won four, right? Uh, oh, nice. And, and I was, I was pretty stoked. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to get up to seven in premiere, but, uh, but, uh, but I did, I did pull this. Get that beautiful alternate Ooh, art Vega the Watcher. Go, Vega the Watcher. That Super is Super beautiful card. Yeah. And that's that. The thing is in a foretell deck, that thing is brutal. Right, that thing is like can give oh, you a yeah. lot of card advantage. If you splashed green to have a lower scale coaddle in there, which is exactly what I want to do, I'm going to draw a lot of cards. <laughs> <laughs> the dream, the dream draft deck, indeed. The, the thing is, that's a dream. That, that's a dream that you want to not realize because, like, if I splashed X color, it's like, yeah, or maybe you just never see it. <laughs> maybe maybe you sit there with your snake in your hand the whole time waiting for that forest. So. You know, if you're Arjuna playing <laughs> playing the arena draft, that's probably what's happening to you. Yeah, I, my, my, most of my drafting, when I say I won four yesterday, my drafting on arena, I, I mean, well, not just even live. I have a gift for pulling the unplayable rare. Like the first time I drafted Eldraine, I pulled happily ever after. Oh, you gotta love it! Well, cool. I'll just play that in draft. Then it'll be great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Tybalt's trickery gamer over here. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, John, I'm super excited to get into the arena talk because, of course, that's why we're here. Before we get into all of that, though, I'm just I'm super curious about your history with magic and like your general history with nerddom. Because I'm, I'm sure that magic is not your first rodeo when it comes to, you know, fantastical stuff and gaming and all that kind of stuff. So I'd really like to hear a little bit about your history with gaming and geeky stuff. So I got into science fiction and fantasy. I mean, I was reading uh, C.S. Lewis when I was very small. Right, uh, My father and I got into C.S. Lewis together. And, uh, and then, and actually, you know what? It's funny. I have answered this question in an interview earlier today, but an important piece is missing. If you ever read my second book, Universal Harvester, I did it, or third, I guess, um, I dedicated it to three teachers, people who really showed me the way. And one of them was a woman in Debbie Vansell, who was a fifth grade teacher, uh, fifth and sixth grade in Claremont at Sycamore School. It would take a long time to explain how public schooling in Claremont was very different for a brief window of time. 
but it had to do with people who had graduated in early education in the late 60s and who were going to change the world through early childhood education by making it also about living your values. And, and it, there was this window. Conservatives saw this happening a little too late to stop it from doing some good, but then they started cracking down through, through local school districts. But she was in this window where after lunch, and I think I now recognize that part of what she was doing was after I have lunch, I can't have the kids, I can't be supervising the kids immediately. I need a break. So she would read to us for an hour after lunch. We'd come in after lunch break. We're all keyed up kids. And then we'd sit down and she would sit in front of the class and read. And I forget what the first book she read, but at one point she read The Hobbit. And I mean, we loved it a lot. I, I especially. And then so then we, you know, when it came time to read another book, we asked her to read Fellowship of the Ring. And she did that, right? I don't think we got into the two towers but by that point all of us had gone off I and mean, like we all were we learned how to write our names and elven runes not our personal as we assumed character names and i was Gollum, right and uh and i can still write Gollum and elven runes because i wrote it everywhere it was like it was our whole thing right and from there i started looking at the magazine of fantasy and science fiction at my mom's library where she worked she had a big backlog of that and analog and isaac anasimov's science fiction magazine and I was into dragon stuff. Now, Anne McCaffrey was very new in those days. I never did wind up reading her, but I always like, I didn't want that much of the hard science fiction. I wanted to know about it. I wanted to be, I wanted to be learning it as far as the field went, but my own area was sort of fantasy with a horror element. In a, instead of a couple of years, it became more horror, which was a much smaller niche at the time. It was so tiny to get into horror. You had to shop at the right comic store and find the single horror zine that was printed that, that had wider distribution, which was called Whispers, right? And they were publishing like Ramsey Campbell and Dennis Etchison, Robert Aikman, uh, uh, Lee, you know, uh, a lot of these writers who were fantasy with a very dark edge to it. So that was my stuff. But that, that world led me to going to a science fiction convention when I was like 12, going to a Ren Fair once. That was very much not my scene, the Ren Fair. But, and, and the convention was a little weird because I... I didn't want, I did not have a desire for it to be the entirety of my life. I was too into music, right? Uh, and that's, this is still true for me that I don't, I don't really affiliate a hundred percent with any identification. Like my stuff is nerdy as hell, right? But I'm not a proper, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a rogue element in the, in the crew, right? Because I'm also a musician dude, right? And it's like, that's a big part of my life there. I'm also a, most of the literature that I read is is you know highfalutin serious literature i know i i reject all genre boundaries so i don't think i don't really respect any distinction between serious literature and popular literature or anything like that but the stuff i like tends to be you know confusing stuff right stuff that you really have to slow down to read and, and stuff that rewards second and third visiting visitations you know literature and translation a lot of the time uh that's where I sort of landed, but I've stayed engaged with all the other stuff for the most part. I became a comics guy also like around the same time. Very glad I got out of that before comics culture really became what it became. I mean, I know it's, it's more than its most toxic elements. It is totally more than that. I know a bunch of great comics people, but I, I would be so bummed out to be in the sort of, you know, having to constantly battle macho elements and stuff like that, you know, um, that, that stuff, but that's where I, so I sort of, and I was a huge Harlan Ellison fan when I was in sixth and seventh and eighth grade. I mean, I worshiped that guy because he was this image of the writer as of the imagination as the most sacred place you can occupy. I feel very different about that these days. I actually think the audience, I think the reader is king, right? And it's like, to me, the reader is who does the magic. The writer is kind of, 
the fool in uh, folklore, right? Where the fool does a thing and tells a lot of real truths, but he does not do that because he's a genius. He does it because he can't help it. <laughs> so, you know, and that's me. It's like, I don't take a lot of credit for what I do. I have a thing that I do and it seems to have some amazing and awesome effects out in the world. And I'll claim credit for having honed my craft. Like, I don't think anybody really versifies to the extent that I do in terms of like, you know, writing lines that actually scan as poetry, you know, that scan as, as, as formal verse. I'm real good at that. And I take a lot of credit for that. And I can hit a certain emotional range, but the power rests in the hand of the listener and the reader. That's, that's where I landed. And all that is very deep theoretical talk that usually doesn't enter into genre fiction talk. Genre fiction is more at the level of the story, right? So. I was really interested to learn this, that in your novel, Wolf in White Van, yeah you came up with this game played over mail right it was one of these mm -hmm. like letter games that were popular yeah. in the in the previous era yes did you have experience in that kind of gaming no okay so so i actually what what i love about the process of that is like when i had my story to tell the guy was was uh you know sean was a person with a horrible deformation in the, my first chapter and then the way that I write, because I want all my stories to read as though they took place in the world we live in, right? that's a big part of, well, for now anyway, I might go elsewhere in the future, but that's always been my, my way, right? So the first question I ask about my characters is, what does he do for a living? Right? That's always my, how do you get money? How, do you, how are you paying your rent? Because for most of us, at least eight hours a day are spent worrying about that, right? Trying to work on that. In most fiction, a person goes to the office and comes back, but unless the book takes place in the office, we don't see a third of their lives and we don't see the third they're sleeping. So we're only going to a sliver of who they actually are. Right. So I said, well, if he's terribly deformed, I have to do something like marketing from home. And I thought, Oh, maybe since he already was into science fiction stuff, I got this idea for a play by mail game. It was my own idea. But then I, I wound up asking much later after I'd been writing it, it was like not quite published yet, I, I think, but I was able to ask Jason Morningstar who I play games was like, did this ever, was this a real thing? He said, no, I think there were people doing that. And he said, there was a company called Flying Buffalo that that I think still exists. And their website was still up until recently, but I tried to sign up after the book was publishing and it bounced. But I mean, the internet obviously changes everything for that level. But, you know, mail, old, old technology has always been a, a huge abiding concern of mine. You know, and the, the way we form attachment to technologies that age out. And this happens to everybody, I guarantee you. As giant as Twitch now is now, there's going to come an age of people. Remember Twitch? Remember when we did that? <laughs> Remember before whatever comes next? Like there's always a whatever comes next. And then your attachment to technology, then you learn how much a part of you it was. And mail, God damn, in the earlier days of fandom, the mail was, you know, you found out about a zine that was a little more niche than the ones you could buy on the newsstand. You saw, I said, you saw it advertised in the back of the magazine of science fiction and you, and you gambled two bucks and set off for it, right? And that would open a door to other people in other parts of the world or country doing something in your area. And it was like, it was, it was an amazing point of contact. And I thought, well, that, that would be interesting for my guy because it's kind of going to be the only people he hangs out with. Man, I, I love it. This point that you make about the technology, I think is so relevant, especially to right now because with us living in the pandemic, it's kind of putting into perspective the way that we rely on various forms of communication and various forms of technology in order to continue to pursue our interests and to stay in touch with the people that we want to stay in touch with. 
And yeah. earlier you were showing me your battle station where you sat up to play. No, I'm right there now. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah, here's my, some of my friends who here's a, a, a myosaur. And then here's a, and here's my little wizard guy that I found at a shop in Alabama. And he, he sits atop the, my hard drive over here. And then here is, uh, and there's three hockey players uh, that they helped me, uh, Eric Lindros and uh, Paul Correa and uh, Peter Forsberg. And Hello Kitty sits amidst them uh, near a game science die. I don't know if you know game science, but oh yeah, only dice that actually give you a truly random roll. <laughs> and there's a kaiju here. I got all my dudes. <laughs> I love it. So I, I think that you're kind of living into the fact that as someone who wanted to play Magic, you actually, it sounds like you converted to playing Arena during the yeah. pandemic because of availability challenges, right? I have Catholic tendencies, which means I like... I like rules and limitations right, a lot. And I mean, then I like to break them because it's what they're about. But one thing that was really frustrating me at pre-releases that I was getting attitude about is like, I was not following previews online or anything. I like to see the cards for the first time at the pre-release. Now that's just because that's for foolish reasons. That's just because the first time I did it, that's how it was. Right. But then I got really attached to that. And it was really frustrating that everybody knew the meta by the time they hit the pre-release at midnight. I'd be like, no, we should all be learning this together. That would be so cool. Right. Well, that's not really possible, but but I started to develop a real like, well, Arena is ruining it. <laughs> it's like, if it wasn't for Arena, these people, you know, and I still, to some extent, like, you know, in good deck building, if your card's good enough to play, play it four times, right? That's, that's, that's you're, until you're getting to super advanced modern decks where you're impossibly interactive and delving and stuff, you know. But generally speaking, in basic deck building, if a deck's worth, if a card's worth playing, it's worth having four of them in your deck. But in Arena, it gets to such an aggressive version of the meta. Like when somebody is playing a deck, when I see you splash Hallowed Priest, I bet I can name every other card in your deck, right? And I'm not interested in playing against that deck now. I don't care if I can beat it or not. You know, it's like, I just, if, if there's no surprises in your deck, that's, that's like, you know, it's as if we've sat down and said, okay, we're going to roll two six-sided dice 20 times a piece, and I'm going to bet that I roll five more times than you roll nine. <laughs> it's like, well, we already know what the odds are on that. We can calculate those odds right now. They won't be for certain because there is an element of chance, but, and it's true in magic too, but like, but the absolute rigor of the meta on arena is frustrating to me. And in proper, you know, in, in, in proper local game store magic, the meta has a little less of an advantage, right? The, the, the meta is sort of runs up against, against some limitations which is where it gets into sort of talks about class and money where like people play proxies and the other people hate on playing proxies. I don't want to play against a proxy, but at the same time, I don't want to tell somebody they have to spend $200 on a card, you know, if they have a deck idea, if that deck idea is somebody else's deck idea, that's when the proxy kind of offends me. It's like, oh, I mean, you didn't, you have no personal attachment to this deck. <laughs> you just want the proxy to build a very powerful deck. So you want to play a different game than I play Whereas I want the game to, my game is expressive to some extent of my creativity, right? I want to make a deck that does something cool. You know, I want to find some interaction that's janky, right? So it's something that's a little weird, you know? 
Well, that, I mean, that's basically how I came to know you as I, I feel like you're the ultimate competitive jank brewer, right? <laughs> you, I, you can't prove it by my play today and last night. But yes, theoretically, I've made Mythic five months in a row. So maybe. <laughs> I mean, uh, making Mythic five months in a row with your own brews, with specifically janky brews, I think yeah. is quite the achievement. <laughs> well, it may speak to the fact that I just play too much. <laughs> but you do actually have to win games to get that right yeah no i do i do and and uh yeah i I, i'm surprised sometimes and the thing is i know that my jank builds are actually and what they wind up being is like okay this is one third dimmer rogues and one and two thirds control right that's all i'm doing is and you know a a real proper thinker like lsv or somebody could could look at that and go well here's what your deck is it's these two decks and the reason your deck is losing a lot is because it can't decide what it wants to be if you'd build it around this we'd win more but got to do what I do. It is fun to be suddenly playing. I mean, my decks give you options. My, my, you know, you can resort to a control strategy. The one deck I played and the one I made it with last month, the Ephemia deck, that's a, it's pretty, you are going to load it up with enchantments. You have to do that, right? You have to have a lot of enchantments. You have to throw out your Heartless Act and use Myers Grasp instead. And that is a swinging deck. But that, that one looked probably more like whatever the Ephemia build is supposed to be. But I'm always trying to avoid that and do something that, that that is my own. So is that has that always been your approach to magic, or is it kind of like a middle finger to the arena kind of deterministic way of being? It's always been my approach, only insofar as I didn't realize there was an actual meta that people talk about. And I still don't know that there is. I mean, I was talking about how the reader has as much power as the writer. This is true in magic. I know the people at Wizards, right? And I have been to the offices and I don't think that they're sitting down and going, here's a meta build. This is it. Now they do build specific decks, right? They say, here's a deck. This is that. But most of these meta builds we see are not in fact, you know, the Elspeth deck or something. There's something else where players, I think, see things that the designers maybe do see, but I think the designers are thinking in terms of a much bigger world of possibilities instead of the deck, right? I really, I, I can't prove that, but I think that's what's true. Whereas the players see the new set of cards, and these are all like giant brain people who if I play against them, I will lose in three turns. I don't care what they're playing, you know? But these are the guys who go, nope, okay, I'm looking at these cards and I'm seeing that your sack deck looks like this. And I mean, they see it all, you're probably one of them. <laughs> so, whereas I, you know, I look at it and I go, oh man, really? So. So that thing never dies, huh? I'll be damned. (laughs) You know, I fell in love the first time I saw Sir Conrad. I was like, cool, cool, gone. Kill my stuff, kill my stuff. (laughs) Kill it dead. Put it in the graveyard. And John, you're not the first to go down the Sir Conrad road either. Sir Conrad has led many a mage. (laughs) He's so great. And especially, he is especially great when... You know, when you have graveyard return, the the thing that's great about him as a as as a design is that they made him two black. So if you are going to try and build him, you know, graveyard return, there's a lot of green graveyard return. Right? There's a lot of stuff in green that helps you get stuff into the graveyard. You know, the acolyte of affliction, those guys, right? But with Sir Conrad, if you're going to splash green, well, once you have, ideally, you want him out on your fifth turn. You do not want to wait longer with Sir Conrad for him to start going to work and. Uh, and so he's encouraging mono black. I think mono decks in the past couple sets are actually much more powerful than they were at Eldrain, right? Whereas Eldrain, I think, was like challenging you to pay a little bit of a penalty by going mono. If you want to play Garrick, he's green black, right? So Garrick and Conrad, 
go for it if you want, but Conrad is, is challenging you to play mono, I think. And, uh, and that was more of a challenge then than it is, uh, that it is at present, but at present, I think uh, <laughs> my monitor just turned on and now you're hearing the arena theme. <laughs> I know, <laughs> I was like, I think I recognize that music. <laughs> we get, get to my preferences and see if I can, uh, where, where are those at? Uh, audio, there we go, we'll turn, uh, turn the music down. But yeah, so that's my, my sort of thing is like, like when I, I see something that, that looks like it speaks to, I mean, I think there's that famous article about Timmy's Spikes and Johnny's, right, where where I think I think the Johnnies are the ones that that, that want to do cool stuff, right? You know, that like, and that don't care so much about big cards, right? Would Would you describe yourself as a Johnny? Yeah, I mean, I think I'm a Johnny leaning Timmy, but I happen to rest in Spike territory if I go Mythic. But I'm not. I'm certainly not a Spike. I don't enjoy, like, if I'm enjoying a game where I just whip you, I don't feel great about myself. I want to have fun playing Magic. I had a friend who who's a really great guy. Who who drafted a really good deck early in El Drain, and and he he just was crushing the draft people. And one guy got really salty with him. And my friend, this is one of the nicest people I know. He said, "Well, you know, at least we had a good time playing Magic." The guy was really salty. He goes, "Well, I didn't. <laughs> I just sat here and you beat me." You know, <laughs> I like, and that's how I feel if I'm the guy in the in the dishing out the beating chair. And it happens. My, when I was playing some Dimmer Rogues last month, you know, a lot of those decks, if they get out ahead. That's just, zero sum fun. Is, yeah, it is. is. And, yeah, and that's the thing. I don't want to be the only person having fun at the table. I really don't. I come from I come from playing tabletop, and tabletop. If everybody's not having fun, it's not fun. And I have long spiels about this in video games because there's a moment at which video games, and that moment is Mortal Kombat. There's a moment at which video games become really unfun because the guy comes up and drops a quarter in the machine to play doubles with you, doesn't ask whether you want to play doubles, just walks up, right, and then crushes you because he's memorized all of the 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 uh the things are like i didn't come here to get crushed i came here to play and have fun and i'm happy to play doubles with you but not if you're you know i didn't show up at the golf course to play against tiger <laughs> it's yep. like i don't want to i don't want to it's not fun for me i'm not gonna learn anything from it you know so and that's you know that's i, I never want to be the guy in the hey now you're playing me you get to lose right that's it's not that's not me at all it's like i want us to be both be having fun and that's why an interactive deck is fun i love it if i'm countering spells and they're getting counter countered that's fun for me so yeah i mean it's it's a lot of what people like about magic honestly is is the interaction and i do i i I think it is so sad that you have this beautiful large pool of cards right and and they each one has this incredible love put into them by the designer and then you know and then along comes the meta and it basically just cuts out this huge, you know, just all of you in in the paper shredder. No, you and I are on the exact same page about that. Like, I do think the designers are seeing. I mean, you know, when I say, I, I'm sure they see those meta decks. I'm sure they also go, well, you know, what else would be fun? Because I've played at the offices, and those people are playing for fun. Because play, I mean, fun should be the first thing. I know it's competitive. I know we invest money in the cards, and I mean, I I, I bought a bunch of gems in the last month on Arena. You know, obviously, I want to win games. You know. But it's not more important to me than playing a game that is fun because I'm sending a lot of time into it. And, and that time for me is the reward I will get is the growth you experience by having fun, even with strangers. And this what can be great about the emotes is if you're using the emotes, like, like, honestly, it's really fun to say nice when somebody plays a card that you didn't see coming. You know, and that's one thing I really dislike is people who say good game right out of the gate. Right. It's like, oh, cool. Mr. Macho dude. And that's when I, I mean, if you're a dude, you know, an average dude, then you natively just respond. Oh, word? 
Oh, where do you see this? You know, and that's not a healthy place to be. It's Let not me show cool. you my Hushbringer, dude. Exactly. He's like, oh, good luck with your, oh, oh, I'm sorry. You didn't get to put a one counter on that, did you? No, because Hushbringer. Yeah, there's three more where she came from. <laughs> so let, let's talk a little bit about, I'd love to hear a little bit about like just your methodology for jank brewing. Because I think that there's a difference, okay, there's a difference between someone who just sits down and just like throws together a cards that I own dot deck, as opposed to someone who, some folks out there who like have perfected the art of jank brewing. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not there because <laughs> I, because I am too emotional a player, I think. <laughs> but, but I feel like you've definitely time and time again, you've been able to go the distance with your jank brews. So I'd love to hear just a little bit about your process. How do you start your brews? What, what is it about the cod pool that stands out to you? And then how do you build around that? So I will confess, and this is a guilty confession, that it happens in play. Somebody beats me with something that I resent, right? That comes at me too fast, that beats some deck I was enjoying, right? That beats a deck that I just won three with, and then you come along and you crush me with usually, and it'll be with usually, I'm playing against mechanics that I don't like. Like, I'm not crazy about mutate, but, but I really hate landfall, right? Landfall to me, that's the one I become so your standard internet magic player about it? No, you should not be rewarded for playing lands. It's the most basic thing in the entire game. So you don't. You should not get rewarded for playing a land. And then in all these landfall decks, you know, it's like, oh, Fabled Passage. Oh, you're gonna crack that. Now you're gonna play Cultivate, right? You're gonna do all these things to get more lands to come out. And like, and, I, and I'm of the opinion, like, you didn't deserve a cookie for playing that first land in the first place. Like, you know, it's like landfall drives me nuts. And, uh, and I don't like having to deal with, it. and you can't stop it. I can't, in, I, I, yeah, I can't enchant your stuff in a way to take, well, yes, I can actually. Yes, I can. So a deck that I built last night that I'm looking at now that it only won a couple games, but it served its purpose of punishing people for playing cards that I don't like, right? And a lot of my decks are like that. So it's called Blue Anger. Right. Okay. I like it already. 24 snow covered islands that are there literally for only one other snow permanent. And that snow permanent is who? Can you guess? It's a one drop. Is it the the spirit? The the pumpable snow spirit? (laughs) Yeah. Because that is a brutal card. Yeah. That is a really that card's a game ender. I mean it's like uh Yeah, ascendant spirit, I think is what it's called. Spirit. Yeah. Pay two snow to turn it into two three warrior, pay three to turn it into a four four angel pay four to put two one one counters on it and then you draw a card every time it hits a player at that point it's either incredibly effective removal or card draw and it, and it came out for one right so all my all my lands are snow covered islands then i have two essence scatters four facet readers it's a wizard it's a two drop that i can pay one and tap it to draw and discard all i'm trying to do is find my stuff i got four frogifies it's an aura auras aren't the strongest things i'm not going to get paid back for it for anything but what Frogify does do is it shuts down your mutate, right? And, and that's what I was doing was responding to some hellish Dreamtail Heron deck that was continually bouncing my stuff. I was like, okay, show me your Heron again. Come at me with that again. Then I got two Negates. I'm gonna, uh, then I got four Caliphates, which is too many Caliphates. Right? So, <laughs> but Caliphate taxes. And the first deck I went to Mythic with before God Pharaoh's statue went out of rotation was a heavy tax deck that I learned from... Uh, uh, Itai Ben Sassone and I are casual friends, and he uh, for a competitive player who played a death and taxes deck. And I sort of fell in love with that strategy of like, oh, 
I'm just going to stop you from casting your stuff and my stuff isn't even going to be especially strong, but you just can't do it. Right. And, and God, Pharaoh's statue dings you for one and, and prevents you from cast from casting your spells. I had a bunch of tax cards out there. Miserable deck. Um, so Calife, uh, you can't come at her unless you spend an extra mana. Then I have two cancels, four didn't say pleases, four Cherics the Raging Isles. Right? Oh, yeah, there you go. And four Sir Eleonora, right? Uh, and that's it. That's, I went two into the story. And all those into the stories and fat and uh, and facet readers, all they're there is to try and get me to Sherex because I'm playing lands. I have cheaper spells. I don't have any land ramp, so it's still going to take me a while to get Sherex big enough. But once he's out there, and Cherix is like such a house of a card that if you can't if you can't exile him, you're out of luck. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah, big, big butts there. I like big butts, and I cannot I, lie. I love... Oh, yeah, you, are you a high alert player? Do you miss high alert? Oh, man. <laughs> I, you know, it was one of the first things I did when uh, when that set... Was it Zendikar Rising? When that actually was released on Arena, I put together a historic deck, and it, oh, yeah, yes. it was yeah, it was the high alert. It was playing and the turtles. 05 turtles and all that, <laughs> you know. And yeah, and that deck is like you know you get whooped 65 percent of the time, and then the rest you're just crushing people on turn four, right? Yeah, so, no, high, high alert is absolutely. And you're playing crabs. You're playing that. People see the wish coin crab and go, "Why is he playing this?" It's like because he's gonna yeah. hit you for five in three turns. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you start to recognize it, right? You're like, oh, this person's only played walls for the first two. T- okay, I, I yeah. know, I know what's coming, right? I know. Well, that was coming. one of the first built decks that I that I tried to build myself was a Wall of Lost Thoughts deck. <laughs> it was like because okay. I just love the name. I fall in love with the names of cards. I think these designers have such beautiful imaginations. You know, Wall of Lost Thoughts is an incredible card name. Uh, I just just gorgeous, you know, and. And making a wall deck takes real dedication. <laughs> it sure does, man. It sure does. But no, but I, I love that you took us through like your methodology for putting together one of these decks, right? I think of this as like this is revenge magic. Is, yeah. is what it that is. That deck is trash. I mean, it's <laughs> like that 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 deck does not really work very well. Whereas, like you know, the other thing I do is like I get tribal. I go, man, I like this dog. You know, I really like tribal decks. So I built a deck called Good Dogs, right? And Good Dogs is exactly what you think it is. It's Selfless Saber, the, Hell, the Hellhound, Pack Leader, Alpine Houndmaster, Maul of the Skyclaves, because one of my things in all these decks is I have to make them fly, right? I have to make them fly or they're just dogs, right? So, but I really, that's a fun, Ferocity of the Wilds, which I think I overvalue. It, it, it seldom does me as much good as I want to because of the plus zero on the other side of the one. Um, but Rambunctious Mutt, on the other hand. There you go. Artifact and enchantment removal is so huge in the current meta right now. You really need something that takes care of both of those. And as soon as he comes in, if I could only build a deck that would bounce Rambunctious Muck back to my hand and let him destroy multiple enchantments, but in a red-white deck, you're probably not doing a lot of bouncing. You got to get that Nico Aris going. That's yeah, a, I get that. Or, <laughs> that's or, that's or, what you got to yeah, do. Yeah, I get that. But the thing is, like, I like Baron. One of my mythic decks was a Baron yeah, deck. Yeah, Baron. That guy rules. <laughs> yep. So the regular co-host of this podcast tonight, we actually were playing in the M21 pre-release, and we just randomly got matched up against each other. And I was playing Shrines. So yeah, was, oh, 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 you're my enemy, man. Those shrines. Oh, man. Those are... <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're so bad until they're so good. And then... Yeah. And meanwhile, he was playing a deck, and it the whole thing was Yorian, Baron, uh, uh. Niambi. <laughs> 
Brazel oh, Borrower. And it terrible. was just like, just anything that hit the ball is just back to your hand, back to my hand. You know, at the end of the game, he was just looping two ECDs every single turn. Man. So, uh, <laughs> you know, there's an effect I don't think they've ever done because you can destroy enchantments, but in the fictive world of actual enchantment, we have a lot of cases of wizards losing their power, right? That's sort of a classic fantasy story is like the, the or, or the magic doesn't work here, right? In this plane, my magic is nothing, right? And I, I, I would love something that was, that was similar to frogify on enchantments, you know, it's like target, target permanent, you know, I mean, there is something, isn't there something that just turns target permanent into a one, one something. Um, I mean, I think in modern, there's probably a bunch of cards like this, but, uh, yeah, but yeah like, I would love to be able to make enchantments to, to make them impotent. Right. So. Right. Yeah. It's, uh, imprisoned in the moon, I think was a, mm. a cool one that just turns anything into a land, you know? Yeah. Oh, that's great. <laughs> so, so it doesn't make it worthless. It just says, or, or, you know, uh, I mean, that's what, that's what, what's his name, uh, did, uh, uh, uh planeswalker who got banned, uh, it, that'll elk make a nice elk, right? Yeah, elk. yeah exactly. <laughs> Just... Lovely creature makes a good elk. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Nice three three you got over there. Yeah. Love, that that card was so terrifying and awful. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, all of us who lived during the time of Oko can remember. It's yeah. because he was adorable. He was it was blue blue green cards seldom look or feel aggressive you know they feel like they're having fun with you and even the shark to crab is like hey i'm a big old shark to crab and i'm going to hurt you and so, yeah it, it's so innocuous until it's suddenly just running rampant over every format and magic yeah simic was really fun in those days i'm not sure that it's really quite where it was but simic i mean i can't actually build a working simic deck my simic decks always die to removal pretty quickly but my friend clinton who i play with will build these Simic decks that are just intensely interactive with Shark to Crab. And there's another big blue green card in that set that, that like these things just continually put counters on each other. Very, very ugly cards. Well, I, what I love that you're highlighting here is that there are layers to the matter, right? So you have like these really yeah. spiky people who keep coming up against, you know, the mono white aggro and Naya and, you know, all of these kind of really, really yeah. intense decks. But then there's like, there are these whole other universes where you've got John playing his funky mono blue deck against his friend's funky Simic mutate deck or whatever. Yeah. And this is a whole other, it's just a whole other plane as it were, right? We, we planes walk yeah. to a different part of the magic universe and people are using different magic over here. Well, that's the beauty of the game. And that's where like, I'm not, I don't, I'm, I don't have idols, you know, but when I think about, about, uh, um, okay, I was gonna say Rosewater, but no, the, the guy who designed it, um, yeah, Garfield, Richard Garfield. Garfield, Gar Richard Garfield, right? The vision of this of the game mechanic is so vast that it allows you to play the game for a million different reasons. Not a million, but you know, many different reasons, many different ways of playing, not just in terms of, you know, whether you're playing brawl or standard, but within standard, within any format, you could be expressing your your desire to play in so many ways through these cards. And that it, and that it's a robust enough system to see 20 years of like, you know, well, here's something else you can do. And that the players have so much to do with determining that. And this is really the, the, the you know, it's corny to say, but it's the magic of the game is like, there are so many ways to enjoy playing it. You know, it's like, and that's, that's where I miss paper magic the most is like, if you, if you are at draft 
and you sit down with somebody, it's both your third game. And how are you doing? It's like, oh, God. <laughs> no, I happened to win the last one, but this deck is bad. I didn't pull anything. Oh, me too, right? And you sit there and play your garbage against each other and have a lot of fun watching how they work. You know, it's like, and that's something people don't do on Arena much. It's like, it's just come to the, come to the table with trash to see what happens, you know, and that can be a lot of fun. So my interview with John ended shortly after this. He was having a busy day and had to move on to his next appointment. But I just wanted to say thank you once again, John, for having this conversation about Arena. It was really fantastic to get into your competitive, casual, jank mindset. And wishing you the best of luck for hitting Mythic with your janky brews moving forward. John Darnell, of course, you won't have trouble finding him on the internet. You can go listen to the Mountain Goats. You can check out his collection of written works. And if you're on Twitter, I would really recommend following him on Twitter. His handle is Mountain underscore Goats. And I really enjoy following him. He does post quite often about magic, in addition to a lot of other interesting topics that he follows. If you're lucky, you might even catch one of his extemporaneous songs about hitting Mythic with his various janky decks. Alright, that's all I have for you today. Catch you next time, crafties. Crafties.